Today, I would like to talk about an issue that we're seeing within the church, the American church um, across the country. And um, it's an issue not like COVID. It's not a health issue. Um, It's an attendance issue. Church attendance and more importantly, affiliation with faith as a whole is on a decline. And I'm a very analytical person. I love stats. I love numbers. Um, I I love going, I'm an avid sports fan, so I love going and comparing numbers, um, different, you know, quarterbacks and, and whatever it is. I very much enjoy numbers. And so when when we talk about this issue, when we think about this issue, I want to see the numbers. I want to see what the numbers say as far as church attendance, what are the stats on church attendance. And so I I went on a search for this information, and of course Gallup, they do great polls and have for, for a very long time. And they had a poll in 2020. And, and what it is, is it, it's looking directly at this issue. It's looking at <clears throat> um, attendance and affiliation with faith as a whole. Um, they didn't just focus on Christianity. They kind of focused on across the board. And so we have lots of different numbers to compare. And a, as we were looking at this, this poll um, and these statistics, a few categories stuck out. Um, and in order to really get a grasp on the poll, we have to know what they're looking at, what they're looking for. And so the first thing that we look at is how they have the groupings laid out. And so there's four generations that we're looking at. Um, when I get to your generation, raise your hand and shout it. I'm just kidding. So we start with traditionalists. Those are our born from, from 1946 and before. We have our baby boomers, 1946 to 1964. Gen X is 1965 to 1980. Yeah, okay, <laughs> <laughs> and millennials from 1981 to 1996. And uh, yeah, yeah, uh, there's a lot of us that fall into that. That's awesome. Um, and so the first point that sticks out to me um, is the change in church membership from 1998 to 2020. And on average, the older generation or the older three generations dropped by an average of about 11%. And um, and this is going to be really hard to read. Matt warned me. Uh, I had him put it up anyway. Um, and of course, you can find all of this on Gallup's website. It's all laid out exactly like this. I stole this from them. Um, just don't tell them. Uh, so as we look at the numbers, we see, you know, the, the older three generations, it's about 11%. Um, millennials, they, they weren't a part of this specific data point because they're, they're judging attendance as an adult. And so, of course, in 1998, most of us in the, that generation weren't adults. So we focus on the, the, main th- or the, the older three generations. And, you know, traditionalists dropped by 11%, baby boomers by 9 Generation X by 12 And so there's a decline through every generation. As, as we move through this, we're, we're going to see that as a, as, a, as a constant thing, is that no matter what generation we look at, the numbers are declining. The next point is among membership across all religious affiliation. Um, During the same time from 1998 to 2020, churches, synagogues, mosques, all of their memberships dropped from 73% to 60%. A 13% drop in a very short period of time. In fact, by generations, the change in religious affiliation across total population becomes more dramatic. From 1998 to 2020, traditionalists went from 4% to 7%. 
meaning they do not have any religious affiliation whatsoever. Baby boomers went from 7% to 13%. Gen X went from 11% to 20%. And then when we look at millennials and we pick them up in 2008, when most of us had become adults by then, 22% to 31%. Have no religious affiliation whatsoever. And you think, well, let's not look at it from a generation perspective. Okay, great. Let's look at it from different subgroups. So if you focus on the different subgroups as far as church membership is concerned, there's a few different demographics we can look at. 18% of men and 20% of women have left the church. 13% married, 22% not married. 9% um, Protestants and 18% Catholics have left their church. And you can keep going down. It goes by, it goes by political affiliation and demographics as far as where you're at in the country, the numbers are dropping. No matter how you look at it, the church body and faith in general is on a decline. And it's hard to put a finger on exactly why. We can place blame on other religions, but as we can see from this information, they're dropping too. We can place blame on other churches or or whatever we want to use, but there are so many different things that are pulling people away from church. We can blame it on a specific generation. These young people are, but it's across every generation. In fact, I believe that we can point to a number of things that have drawn people away. And the biggest issue is that as America progresses, we as a culture become more and more consumeristic, and that we have placed before God anything and everything that we can possibly think of to take up our time on Sunday whether it's sports or travel or just rest. Even it could be a failure of faith. We could be just completely removing ourselves from a faith in general. But no matter what the issue driving America away from faith, it's not specific to our time. It's not specific to our country. In fact, a drop in faith and a complete removal of faith in God is a characteristic we find throughout all of human history. For some, it's other gods, but really it was just the idea of something new, something different, something completely new from from what traditionally was set in place. So today I want to look at a time when a culture was so removed from God that a good old-fashioned intervention was needed. So today I want you to open up with me to 1 Kings 18. And so today as we look at this story, we're going to look at the story of Elijah and Ahab. And as we look at this story, um, we're going to see that, that God had tasked Elijah with the task to take a stand and bring his people back to him. But in order for us to know where we're going in the story, we need to kind of, kind of pull back a little bit and figure out who we're dealing with and where, where they're coming from. So first we have Ahab. We have a little picture of Ahab. That's Ahab sitting on his throne with all of his guys around him. Ahab, at this point, is the king of Israel. And now, so if we look back over the king of Israel, the kings of Israel, starting from the original split after Solomon's reign, when Rehoboam took the tribes of Judah and Jeroboam took the the reign over Israel, there's not much positive to see. The lineage of Judah has its ups and downs, and there, there are some good kings, there are some bad kings. But as we look at Israel, it was only down. From the original split in 19, 
or I'm sorry, in, in 925 BC to the time of the Assyrian captivity around 730 BC, every king was described as doing evil on the side of the Lord. So once we get to the reign of Ahab, somehow it gets worse. They had all done evil, and then it, it gets eviler. I, I don't know. And so what, what's said is in, in 1 Kings 16.30, um, Ahab was the son of Omri, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all before him. So all of these kings had done evil in the sight of the Lord, but somehow he had done more plus some. So much so that later on, it says again, Ahab, the man put in charge of, um, I'm sorry, Ahab was the man that was put in charge of God's people. He's, he's in the promised land. He's, he's in the place that God wanted his people to be, but he's living, living an unbelievably dishonoring life. So much so that again in verse 33, it said, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel before him. We find in this same section of scripture one of the reasons God was so angry at Ahab. He had taken a wife, and this wife had come from outside of the tribes, and her name was Jezebel, and she was the daughter of Ethbel, and he had brought her into the kingdom. Of course, he married her, brings her in, and with her coming into the kingdom, she also brought in her God with her, Baal. We've all heard of Baal. And not only did Ahab welcome this new God, but he also began to worship Baal. Um, he erected an altar to worship him, and Ahab set a precedent within his kingdom not only to reject God, but to worship Baal as well. And this was enough to determine Ahab the most evil and, and wicked king in Israel's history. So the next person we come across is Elijah. Elijah is introduced. There's Elijah looking mad or some emotion. I don't know. But in 1 Kings 17, we, we, we are introduced to Elijah, and he is a prophet from Tishbe. And Elijah comes into the picture just after Ahab. And the significance of Elijah's appearance is this. The faith of the Father, the, the religion of Yahweh was under attack, and the Lord needed a prophet to both warn and to prove that he, God, was still in reigning, or was still reigning and would do so forever. So in an effort to deter Ahab from what was to come, Elijah goes and speaks to Ahab and tells him, 1 Kings 17, 17, 17.1, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be no dew, no rain, um, except by my word. And by extending this plan of events to Ahab, Elijah believed that it would make him pull back from everything that he was doing. He would pull back and he would return to God because no rain means no food and no water and a very miserable kingdom. But even then, Ahab didn't relent. So knowing the evil that Ahab was capable of, God tells Elijah to depart from the area and head east of the Jordan where God could provide for him specifically and keep him safe until it was time to be used again. And of course, God being who God is, there's a famine across the nation. And it would be horrendous droughts, and people would begin to starve. But God would continue to provide for Elijah through all of this. 
So over, over three years later, um, according to 1 Kings 18.1, God calls Elijah back to confront Ahab. And after a few times of requesting to meet, finally we read in verse 17 through 19, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all of Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, and all who eat at Jezebel's table. So this is it. This is what we're, this is what we're preparing up for. God has, God has put all of this into place, and to put all of this into work, and now here we are. The scene is set. Ahab, by not turning, his way, uh, by not turning back to the Lord, has now been called out. And this time, Elijah wants to make it as public and as pointed as he possibly can. So we start here in 1 Kings 18, starting in, chapter, or starting in verse 20. It says this, So Ahab sent all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets is 450 men. So Elijah's issues are mainly with Ahab and Jezebel. We, we see that, we understand that, but he does take this opportunity to call out everybody that's in this situation. It had only been about 600 years since God had saved them from enslavement and around 200 years since they had come to the promised land. And somehow in all of those years, in, in that short period of time, they had completely abandoned the God who saved them. They were wishy-washy in their faith. They were going back and forth between God and Baal, and he called them out on it. Either follow God or follow Baal. There, there's no in-between. Do one or the other. But to finish off the conversation, he needed to point something out to all of those who were watching. I am going at this alone, since all of the other prophets at this point had been either killed or they were in hiding. They were running away because they feared for their lives. I am the only one going up against 450 prophets. So over the next several verses, verses 23 through 30, Elijah put into place this challenge. So we're both going to get a bull. You're going to choose the one you want. We'll place both of them on our own individual altars and we will pray to our respective God. And we'll see which one comes through. So that's what they did. They took their bull, they killed it, they prepared it on the altar, and then they began to pray mightily. And he let, he let the, other, the other guys go first. Set up yours first, go for it, pray to Bell, let's see what happens. So they begin calling out in verse 26, Oh, Bell, answer us. Now Elijah, knowing exactly what God was capable of, began to mock them for what they were doing. They're crying out, they're cutting themselves like they would do in their worship, and they were begging Bell to work. And Elijah in verse 27 says, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he's on a journey. Perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. 
He brings the ultimate trash talk. Maybe he's sleeping. Maybe your God's tired. I'm so sorry. He's taking a nap. Or he's going to the bathroom. He's busy, obviously, because it's not working. And so finally, he's had enough of all of this and he begins to prepare his altar. So we pick up in verse 30. Maybe. Maybe in verse 30. There we go. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord uh, that had been thrown down. And Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And then with the stones he had built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two sahays of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull into place and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars of water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water would run around the altar and filled the trench also with water. So Elijah wants to prove a point that will not be forgotten by those that are surrounding the situation. Not only is there an altar, but he soaked it in water, and he seemed to make it impossible to burn. It, the, the trench around it filled up, and there was about, from the estimates that, that scholars believe, about two gallons of water surrounding this area. And now that he has made his point, what he knows God will do, he begins to pray. Verse 36. And at the time of the offering of obulation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known that this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I would have and that I have done all of these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that the excuse me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned your back, or that you have turned their hearts back. Notice Elijah's prayer is not for him to be vindicated. He had started this challenge, he had talked his trash, and had gone out of his way to make this as, as spectacular as possible. But even then, he was not concerned about being proved right. His worry was that those watching would see what God can do. And that that would be enough for them to return to their faith in Yahweh. And God, being who he is, answered in only a way that he could. Verse 38. It says, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood and the stones and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. God did exactly what only he could do. Not a drop of water left, not a stick, not a stone, not a piece of beef left. No tricks or sleight of hands. God came down and wiped all that stood and left no wiggle room for doubt. These people had known God and had known what he had done for their people, and they still walked away. They still placed Baal before him. 
They lost their faith until God came and proved who he was to them again. Because this wasn't the first time the nation of Israel was proved that God was there with them. So he did it again. It took God acting in an extraordinary way for them to finally believe for themselves that not just because of what they had heard, but because what they had seen today. And there is so much that we can pull from this story and apply to our modern lives. And so I'm not saying that we need to go outside and we need to give God a test to prove who he is to people around us. Unless that's what God has called you to do specifically. I don't know your life. But that's not what he's called me to do. But besides just miracles, we can see and use this story in how we approach our issue that's facing the church today. So the first thing that we can pull from this is we have to curb anything in our lives that pull us away from God. So while the things that we hold most dear might not be drawing us away from God right now, they have the opportunity to draw us away sooner or later. Again, within our current generation, it might not be another God that's pulling us away. Like we see here with Ahab. Again, maybe it's sports. I'm an avid sports fan, and I could spend all day Sunday watching NFL football. I could spend all day Saturday watching college football. I could spend my life watching sports. I enjoy, I enjoy watching golf. I know it's the most boring thing in the world, but I enjoy it. And if I allowed myself, I could let watching sports and participating in sports and going to events completely dominate my life. I could skip events that fell during game times. I could skip church when my team kicks off early. I could decommit from things that I had already agreed on and completely ignoring the instructions of Jesus in Matthew 5.37. And he said, what you, let what you say simply be yes or no. We agree to things and we pull back from them. It's going against Jesus' words. And when we allow things in our lives to become so consuming that we begin to slip away from our responsibilities, we will eventually let those same things take the place of God. And once we do that, we teach the next generation to do that. And from what the stats that we looked at earlier, we can see the slippery slope that's going through life. You know, as a grandparent, we, we, we pull away from church. And, and, then, and then your kids begin to pull away from church. And then their kids, you know, we, we go from, well, we're just going to miss every, you know, a Sunday a month. And then we're going to miss a couple Sundays a month in the next generation. And then that next generation is only going to go on Easter and Christmas. And when there's big events happening... And slowly but surely, this this slippery slope continues. And we go from 79% being affiliated with the church to four generations later in 22 years, or 32 years, to 50%. As As we pull away from God just a little bit at a time, here it goes. And by the time you're four generations later, five generations later, you're you're the people that follow you have completely removed themselves from the faith that you carried. We cannot allow for anything in our lives to take the place of our church or our faith or God in general. For years, I allowed work to, to, play, to take the place of church. I was required to be there on Sundays, and for the right price, I agreed to it. That job soon became my God, and every decision I made 
was based on that job. But the best part is, is God being who God is and knowing the path he had on my life did what I couldn't do or I wouldn't do. I could have done it, but I didn't want to. And he removed that job from my life. And removing that job from my life allows me to be here this Sunday preaching. It allows me to be here last Sunday and the Sunday before that playing drums and working with the youth because I had put this job in the place of God. And God, again, being who he is and doing what only he could do, removed it from my life. We cannot allow things to take the place of God in our lives. The next thing we can get through this is we have to be careful who we allow to speak into our lives and into the next generation's lives. The biggest issue for Israel was that Ahab allowed for a God to be brought in and placed above Yahweh. And as soon as Jezebel stepped foot into Israel, the worship of Baal lasted for hundreds of years. One mistake led to generations of God's people worshiping a false god. One person led to the ruins of generations of faith. And all because Ahab allowed for Jezebel to speak into the faith of thousands of people. And not only speak into their faith, but dictate their faith. And when we allow for anyone and everyone to speak into our lives and the lives of, uh, the lives of our kids, we allow for them to cling to the words of the world instead of clinging to the words of Scripture. When we allow TikTok and Twitter and Instagram to be the driving force of our generations, we can't be surprised when they leave the church because their influencers don't go to church. We have to strategically and carefully and intentionally continue to present the gospel to the generations coming up behind us. And not only that, but we must show them with our actions how important our faith is to us. We have an issue right now of being known as a people who will share our social and political beliefs much faster than we will share our faith. We've become a people of sharing, uh, we have to become a people of sharing our faith in Jesus so much that we are known uh, so much more than what we share our beliefs in politicians or, or in social issues or whatever the issues may be. Which brings me to the last piece. We can no longer remain idle in sharing our faith. Because here's, here's the issue with us being idle, is that the world is not idle with sharing their beliefs. Through social media and regular media, TV and movies, through bills and laws being passed around this country, you do not have to look far to see what the world wants you to, believe, wants you to be and what they want you to believe. Jezebel wasn't idle in sharing her faith. The world is not idle in sharing what it wants our kids to be. We can no longer sit back and be idle about what we need to do and what we believe. Don't get me wrong, I don't think that we're just living this silent life, coming in and doing our thing and leaving. We still post sermons and share scripture online. And we might, you know, we might share something that was posted by the church or by somebody else's church when it comes across our page. 
But when the world is being as intentional as they are, we need to do the same. They are intentionally trying to reach our next generations. But we, as a body of Christ, have to be more intentional. Luckily, we're not facing an an uprising of false gods, of statues, not on a big scale. Don't get me wrong, there are these little places all over the world that have these different worships and these different false gods. But we're not facing it on a large scale like what the nation of Israel was. But what we are facing is a shift in priority. Church, we have to make sure that our priorities align with our faith. We have to make sure that our main focus is on reaching the lost. On spreading the gospel and making sure that God decides, uh, that when God decides to make a point and to start a revival, which he very much can do and will do, that we're ready that we're ready to reach those souls that God's going to bring into our church and that we're ready to speak life into those people that God's going to bring into our church. That we're ready to speak life into people that God's just going to put in your life every day. Whether it's your work life or your school life or whatever it is that you do every day, we have to be ready. So this week, if you are a believer in Jesus, I want you to join me in asking yourself these three questions. Are there things that I prioritize over my faith? Are there things that we put in place of God, you know, whether it's, whether it's intentionally or unintentionally, are there things that we prioritize over our faith? Second question, are there things that I need to remove so that they don't compromise my faith? Are, again, for me, it, it could be a fandom. I, I could be so gung-ho about my Tennessee Titans and then kicking off at 11. But the Titans aren't going to get me into heaven. Are there things that I need to remove from my life? Again, for me, it was a job and I didn't have it in me to do it. I did. I'll just be completely honest. If, if it weren't for God doing what he did, I would still be at that job. Are there things we need to remove so they do not compromise our faith? And the last question, what am I doing to intentionally spread the gospel and not the messages of the world? How are we living in a way that spreads the gospel? What can we do to intentionally spread the gospel?